So if you have your Bibles, open up to Psalm 138. We're going to look at that in a minute. We've been going through a series of Psalms. Uh, we, we, we call it Honest to God because really what the Psalms help you do is work through your thoughts and your feelings toward God. And, and if you've not discovered them yet, I would encourage you to read through the book of Psalms. There's a lot there. So today, Psalm 138. Uh, take advantage of that thing that Eric just talked about, that night, September 9th, Saturday night here at church, not going to be a regular service at all. A great thing to bring your friend to or your relative to, and they're going to hear about youth ministry, children's ministry, all the ministries of the church, men's ministry, women's ministry, all that kind of stuff. My sermon will be like a 10-minute one, a sermonette, if you will, to be able to help people understand who we are. So if you got somebody that's questioning or thinking of maybe they'd come here, please, this is a great chance. Come to regular service, it'll just be regular that weekend too on Sundays, but that Saturday night one, September 9th, is going to be a good one. So today, what we're looking at is Psalm 138, and we call it honest to God because the sermon is all about acknowledging who God is and understanding it. And the psalmist David, I'm going to give you the background to it and everything like that, is really connecting, and we're hoping that this service will help you connect to God. You know, we say in our church that our mission is to connect people to God, connect people to God's people, and then connect people to God's work. So we got a process. We're trying to take you on a journey of doing those three things. It starts on Sundays mostly with trying to help you connect to God. And every week we need like a refresher, don't we, to be able to reconnect, rethink, okay, what are we facing this week? What are we going to do? This is especially an important sermon for you if you're looking for direction and you want to know what you're supposed to do or you're questioning that. This is a very significant message for you. So could I just pray for you right now? Lord, I pray for everyone here, no matter where they're at in their spiritual journey, that you would make this sermon a very key connecting point for them with you, like you did for me years ago. And I pray, Lord, it would be a a time of really understanding more clearly who we are, who you are, our very purpose, and how your unseen hand is involved in our life. I pray that for everyone here, Lord. Hear my cry. I trust you in Jesus' name with this. Amen. You know, Psalm 138 is a very um, significant psalm in my life. The reason is, uh, when I was about 21 years old, I'd been a Christian since I was 18, and I'd already learned about how keeping connected with God, a significant part of that is to learn how to read the Bible like every day and pray. They call it devotions, quiet time, whatever you will. So I was starting to do that, and um, I came to Psalm 138. Here is the situation. Okay, like most 21-year-olds, I was asking the question, okay, now what am I supposed to do? Where's my life going? Where's my direction? Who's my life partner? Da, 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 right? All that stuff, like any 21-year-old. And um, I had a lot of things on my plate, so I was kind of like stressed out. I was going to school full-time. In fact, since I started kind of slow, I was doing like a little more than full-time school. I was involved in a, 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 an outreach called the... Um, coffeehouse ministry, which meant that we were, we had a staff of about 25 to 30 people, adults and, and high school and college kids, all trying to reach out into our community and bring kids out on a Friday night. So I was running that. It was almost like having my first church. It was very exciting. Lots of kids, hundreds of kids would come out on a Friday night and we'd witness to them, we'd sing to them, we'd preach at them, we'd do skits. We had, we had a great time. It was amazing. 
and lots of people came to Christ. So that was a full-time thing. Plus, I'm working a side job. Plus, I got a group of guys I meet with every Saturday. Plus, Sunday afternoons, I play touch football with the guys. Plus, you know how it goes, right? Crazy. So I'm reading Psalm 138, and it's like the lights are just going on. I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that. That happens to me. It's happened to me once in a while. Here I am 40 plus years later telling you about it because it was so significant in my life. And it really was David writing about direction from God as God spoke to him through a prophet and he's responding to that. And so I got to the end of it and in verse 8 it said these words. In fact, today we're going to look at a New American Standard Version because that's the version I was reading at that time. If you don't have one, that's okay. We'll read it off the screen. And the words popped out at me in verse 8 that said, The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. I had so many things I was concerned about. Maybe you two kind of stressed out about so many things. And especially direction in life and what I'm supposed to do, where I'm going to go, and I'm like a little worried about this and overloaded and burdened and stressed. And so... The Lord said, well, the Lord will accomplish what concerns you. And in light of all that he said before that, which I'm going to help you walk through with me, that was just like, boom. Well, the Lord will accomplish what concerns me. And I'm hoping to get your heart and mind at the same place. In fact, at the same time in my life, I was also learning two Proverbs, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge. Acknowledge God and he'll direct your path or he'll direct you, make your path straight. Now that verse, those two verses have hung with me my whole life. Just like this one, the Lord will accomplish. And they're both, both about direction in life. In fact, I began to see what I put down what's called the big idea of the sermon. What you acknowledge directs your life. And it just dawned on me, which I think is exactly what this whole psalm is about, and what David was learning, and what I was learning and he, through him, was that what you acknowledge directs your life. I'm, am I acknowledging the Lord in the way I live, in my priorities, in my thoughts, in my feelings, in my desires, in my direction? The Lord will direct me when I acknowledge him. Just like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says. Just like he'll accomplish everything for his purpose in my life. In fact, in the ESV, another translation, the one we usually use here, it says that he'll fulfill his purpose. Same idea. I'd like to show you how it came down for me. Starting with point one, reads like this. Acknowledge God's loving kindness. This is where it all started for David and it all started for me was in acknowledging God's love and his loving kindness. Let me give you a little of the context before we jump into it. Before we even read verse 1, you know, scholars tell us this came out of an experience David had in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it's recorded. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is going through an experience where, um, you know, it's kind of like that V8 ad. Oh, I could have had a V8, you know. Boom, it just dawned on him. It just dawned on David. My gosh, I live in this palace. And the Lord's tabernacle is in a tent. The heck's wrong with me kind of a thing. I can't believe I did that. So he calls in Nathan, the prophet, and goes, Nathan, I'm under like extreme conviction. Like, look at all that I've got and all the stuff and all the big palace and the Lord's house. The Lord doesn't have a temple. I, need, I should build a temple. And so Nathan says... 
do is what's on your heart. In other words, go build a temple. That's what you feel, you know. So that night, the Lord comes to Nathan the prophet and says, go back and tell David, don't build me a temple. I don't need a temple. Your son, which we find out because we're looking back at it now in history, Solomon built big Solomon's temple. So he's learning. Nathan the prophet's predicting that saying, no, don't build me a temple. Your son will build me a temple. In fact, David, I'm going to build for you a dynasty. In fact, your dynasty will last forever and ever. And of course, we, looking back again, can know, oh, the dynasty? And David will have a son. They'll call it, remember, the son of God. Jesus Christ called himself the son of David because he's in the lineage of David. He's part of that dynasty. He's being told now about that dynasty. And it's going to last forever and ever, even till the second coming of Christ when he sets up his kingdom in heaven. And we, Oh my gosh, it's blowing David's mind, blowing Nathan's mind. He goes back and he tells David all of this. And David goes, oh my goodness. And he does. And he writes Psalm 138. Ready? Point one. Verse one. Acknowledge God's loving kindness. That's exactly what he said. He said, I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. In fact, we should stop right there. Do you see where he's coming from? His mentality is, well, what can I do but give you thanks with all my heart? See, David knew he wasn't deserving of this. Just probably like you, you know, made some mistakes. You're not always that loyal to the Lord. You're not always that bold about telling people about me. You know, you haven't been that good a Christian. And the Lord says, yeah, I'm going to bless you forever and you're going to come. Oh my goodness, all I can do is say thank you, Lord, and praise you. In fact, notice what he says. I'll praise you before the gods. Now, they had the Egyptian gods and they had the different kinds of gods from Samaria and all these different gods. And he's saying, I'm going to praise you before the gods. Do you get the concept there? It's almost like, well, I haven't been that bold. I've, I've been kind of shy about mentioning you at work. And I don't talk about you, you know, like the gods of art, the gods of education, the gods of business, the gods of the media, the gods of politics, the gods of the neighborhood, you know. Like, and he's just feeling conviction like, oh my gosh, the Lord's going to do all this for me. And I have been like shy. I've been timid. I've been intimidated. I haven't, I'm going to praise you before the gods. Be like you said, I'm going to tell everybody at school. I don't care if they like it. Or not. I'm going to tell people at work. I'm going to just declare what God's done in my life. Take it or leave it. Kind of like, whoa, he's got this new boldness now. In fact, later on, he even calls it that. Look at verse 2. He says a very significant word here. I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word according to all your name. Now, this is a very significant statement. More so, I learned since I was 21 years old that this word loving kindness, well, that's a very significant word in Hebrew. It's the word hesed in Hebrew. And it means steadfast love or loving kindness as it's translated here. Well, now Hebrew scholars will tell you this is a really significant concept in the Old Testament. And here David's unfolding it, hesed. He's saying, and give thanks to your name for your hesed, your loving kindness. Uh, let me try and explain it to you. 
In a book called A Loving Life, written by Paul Miller, I've quoted from it before, Paul Miller got some help from some scholars over there at Westminster Seminary, Hebrew scholars, and he learned this about the word hesed. You ready? Here's what it means when he says loving kindness. Sometimes hesed is translated steadfast love, sometimes it's translated loving kindness. It combines commitment with sacrifice. Hesed is a one-way love. Don't forget that. Love without an exit strategy. When you love with Hesed love, you bind yourself to the object of your love, no matter what the response is. So if the object of your love snaps at you, you still love that person. If you have an argument with your spouse in which you are slighted or not heard, you refuse to retaliate through silence or withholding your affection. Your response to the other person is entirely independent of how that person is, has treated you. Hesed is a stubborn love. So you get it now? He says, oh, your hesed, your loving kindness toward me, you love me no matter what I do or have done. Oh my gosh, I praise your name. So, you know, this is going on. Listen a little further. Love like this eliminates moodiness, the touchiness of, of, of increase, that's increasingly common among people today. When my father, Jack Miller, began to observe this phenomenon in the 1970s, he said, it's like people don't have any skin. They're all nerve endings. Moodiness often begins with accumulated slights of the day or if the things aren't just working out right for you. Our inner spirit momentarily, give, give, uh, momentarily gives up on life. And, and we, we stop casting our care, or stop because we just don't seem to care about people anymore. Self is on, on, on a hair trigger. If we do hesed, that's no longer the case. It doesn't mean that we, we don't have moments and days when we have the cranks, he calls them here, angry, or, or sure how, how fragile our spirit is. We just refuse to let it affect us. Hesed is the opposite of the spirit of our age that says you have to express and you have to act on your feelings. Hesed says, no, you don't. Act on your commitments. Did you catch the difference there? This is why I have a problem with people saying falling in love and falling out of love. <laughs> it's not hesed. That's not loving kindness in the Bible. That's based on commitment. The feelings will follow. Love like this is unbalanced, uneven. There's nothing really fair about hesed love. But commitment love, hesed love, lies at the heart of Christianity. It is Jesus' love for us at the cross. And it's to be our love for one another. So you get what's going on with David? David's understanding this idea and says, your hesed, your loving kindness is so great. He says, right here, he says, um, and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. Now look what he says next. For you have magnified your word according to your name. Please listen now. He's saying, you love me based on your name, not mine. Based on your words, not mine. That's what Hesed means. That's what the cross is all about. You didn't deserve it. You didn't do it. He did it for you. Based on his word, not yours. Based on his name, not yours. Now, if that isn't something to praise the Lord about, that's very exciting. 
That's what the word hesed means. That's why Hebrew theologians get all into this saying, whoa, this is the coolest word in the Old Testament. Sure is. It's a one-way love. It's the kind of love I'm supposed to have for my spouse. You're supposed to have for each other. It's a commitment. It's a commitment. It's, remember, love is like concrete. It's concrete. Wow. And so here David, he's just connecting with that. I was 21. I'm just connecting with that and thinking, oh my gosh, that's what that means. I, I saw a movie the other day. It was so cool. Somebody in church who works in a rescue mission, uh, actually they're on the board, and they brought me to this movie um, it, to, to do, it's a premiere, and the movie's actually coming out in October in the theaters. I'll tell you about it. And it's based on a book written a few years ago called, uh, called Same Kind of Different as Me. Have you ever heard of that? Same Kind of Different as Me. Here's the scene, okay? Here's the, how it, the, the story is told. Great actors in it. I mean, great actors. Um, it's a couple that lived in Fort Worth, Texas. And I can relate to that. I lived in Dallas a while, which is kind of like the neighbor to Fort Worth. And they were very wealthy. They had done quite well. But what happened was she kind of had her life and he kind of had his. And their marriage was falling apart. So much so that he even had another girl on the side. Ooh, not so good. That's how the movie starts. And is there arguing? Is there fighting? And it looks like it's over. They finally decide to give it one last ditch effort. This gal had been working in Fort Worth in a rescue mission. And she challenges her wealthy husband, you come work with me in the soup kitchen. You come work with me in the rescue mission. And he's like so prejudiced against street people, against black people, all kinds of things. He goes, no way. You know, this is set like in the 1980s or something. And he goes, no way. I'm not doing that. I'm going to work with those losers. And so he's looking at all these street people like losers, you know. And um, she says, no. You said we need to do things together. And this is what I do every week. So I'd like you to come down with me and work there. He says, okay, I'll do it. So they go down there, and they're serving food to the people that are coming in. You know, guys are alcoholics. People are living on the street. People are trying to get their lives together, and this rescue mission is helping them, especially preaching the gospel of Christ. Well, anyway, he's serving food, and there's this man that comes out, uh, a big, tall African-American guy, and he's just mean and screaming, and he's got a baseball bat and threatening people, and they off to, to talk to him, and some of the other helpers there come and try and uh, get the bat away from him and calm him down, and they go, oh, that's so-and-so, and he always comes, you know. And so he, after he's there a couple of times, his wife challenges him to befriend that guy, and he's going, oh, he rolls his eyes like, befriend him? Uh, I don't think so. Like, I get the snot beat out of me. I mean, this guy's big, you know? And she says, no. I thought, I thought we were here to do this together. She was being very kind to him, and the guy was actually answering her back. So he goes over to his table, and he sits down with the guy, and they're eating together, and he's talking to him and trying to ask him questions, finds out a little bit about him and how he grew up with a really tough background, like back down in Mississippi, working in a you know, big cotton field, and how he ran away from slavery, all these kinds of things, no education, tough life. Um, in fact, that line, same kind of different as me, came from him. But anyway... He goes to see where he lives, 
the next time he visits, and the guy's living on the street, he's got a little place where he cooks and a little place where he sleeps. And this guy's like, wow, I just can't believe people live like this. Gets talking to him some more. And finally, this is like the climax of the movie, a real powerful point. I'll ruin it for you, okay? He, <laughs> he, uh, he asks this man if they could be friends. <clears throat> this big, black, intimidating kind of guy who's just like the coolest guy. You fall in love with him through the movie. He puts his fork down and he says, well, back when I was growing up, the white people used to come in and they'd go fishing. But they didn't fish like us black people. No, they'd catch a fish. They'd look at it. And then they'd just release it back. I, I couldn't understand that. Because when we catch a fish, we take it home, we flay it up, we celebrate, and we have a meal together. They just let it go. He says, that's confusing to me. But I've seen the same thing here from white people. They come into the rescue mission, they say, I want to be your friend. They don't really want to be my friend. They believe in catch and release friends. And sure enough, they're my friend, but then they just release me again. They're not my friend, never see them again. So what kind of friend do you want to be? Are you just a catch and release friend? That's what you want me to be? I'm not interested. And that's basically what this guy was doing. Kind of a catch and release friend. And he's being challenged by this man. You want to be my friend? Then let's be friends. But no catch and release. Do you understand? When God uses the word, when David uses the word hesed, he's saying God has no catch and release. If he caught you in the gospel, if he caught you in his call, if you've heard the call and responded to him, he'll never release you forever and ever. David's getting a hold of that concept. I was 21 getting a hold of that concept. You don't have to worry. He caught you. Hesed love. He won't ever release you. It's the most beautiful thing. That story goes on. It's a beautiful story. And how those two guys become friends for life. It's amazing. It's a beautiful thing. You got to go see that movie in October. But the point of Hesed love is at the core of it. Just like it is here in this passage. It's at the core of the gospel. The gospel story as well as the story of Psalm 138. Look at point two. Point two reads like this. We need to acknowledge his glory because that's what David does next. So he acknowledges God's love for him. Now he acknowledges God's glory. And he says in verse 3, On the day I called, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. Boy, I can relate. Before I go on, let me just stop a second because I can relate to that. And I could when I was 21 because when I became a Christian at 18, went into my bedroom one Sunday night, put my elbows on my bed, got down to my knees, folded my hands, and asked Jesus to come into my heart. Whew, everything changed. I was literally changed. It's almost like my, I had a personality transplant because I was a quieter person. I was not much of an extrovert or willing to stick my neck out for anything or anyone. And all of a sudden, I have a white Jesus jacket and I had my mom so Jesus loves you on the back of it and I would wear that even at the secular junior college I went to and let people mock me and sing Jesus loves me behind me and then turn around and talk to them of the gospel or go to the beach and witness to people I was doing what happened something happened inside 
If that's never happened to you, I question your conversion. Have you ever really had that kind of transformation where there's this new boldness? Read the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, it's all over. When the Holy Spirit came upon people, they got a new boldness. It's like David saying, yeah, I don't, I'm a, before the gods, I'll tell about you because I understand now who you are. You've reached down, you've grabbed a hold of me. And he says, so now I have boldness and strength in my soul. I just thought that was beautiful how he put it. And I can really relate. It's when you really are letting the Lord be Lord of your life. I challenge you to do that. Whether, whether you've become a Christian before or not, come to grips with this truth. On the day I called, you answered me. And that's exactly what happened to me. And you made me bold with strength in my soul. So you can see how this captured me at 21 years old. And then he says the most amazing thing, verses 4 and 5. Follow along with me. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth. And they will sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Now, the word glory here is very significant. Glory means recognition. It means acknowledgement. It means giving honor to something, right? When somebody gets glory, they're getting recognized. They're getting acknowledged. They're getting honored for something, right? Okay. He says here, though, all the kings of the earth will give thanks to you and they'll give you glory. And you're like, when did that happen? I never saw that. Is that happening now? No. What's he talking about? He's talking about things still yet to come. We haven't seen the day yet when all the kings bow down. But you know, if you've read the whole story of the Bible, that's coming. In fact, remember just a few weeks ago, we were in the book of Philippians. Remember that in Philippians chapter 2? Turn to Philippians 2, look verses 9 through 11. says this, For this reason also God highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul's saying the same thing, the day's coming when every knee will bow, all the kings will confess. And so here's this David writing like a prophecy that it's going to happen. Because everything's about what? Did you notice he said it here? Everything's about the glory of God. Verse 5, And they will sing of the ways of the Lord, for the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. This is what's happening to David. He's all worried that maybe he didn't do the right thing. You know, oh God, I didn't, I, I didn't build you a temple yet. And then Nathan the prophet comes back and says, Well, it doesn't matter about that. Everything's about the glory of God. Listen to me. It's like David thought... I got a problem, and it's so huge. I got mistakes I've made. The whole thing he had done with Bathsheba and Uriah, remember that whole story from Psalm 51? And here's the Lord saying to him, don't you get it, Dave? It's all about my glory, and you can't stop it. It's coming. All the kings of the earth are going to bow down. You just live for my glory, and I'll accomplish what concerns you. Whoa. He, it's like that whole, and, and this, it's 21 years old. This is starting to come home to me. Give myself to the Lord, and then I live for his glory. He says, I'll accomplish what concerns you. You just give it to me, because my glory will never end. My glory is what life's all about. I got it. Like, oh. 
See, that's the thought process David's going through. That was the thought process in my bedroom that day when I was 21 years old. I was going through like, well, it's all for the glory of God then. And he's got it. All the kings of the earth someday, everybody will. It's happening. Oh, that, that was an amazing truth for me. And then he says, verse 6. Let's, let's look at verse 6. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Lowly means self-forgetfulness. When someone's lowly, they're so focused on some other need, some other person, on Jesus Christ and his glory here, that they don't even think about themselves. They've left forgotten. Please don't try and be humble. It won't work. Try and be focused on the glory of God. You will be humble because you'll forget about you and your glory and your recognition and your acknowledgement. It's when we start thinking about our rights and what I need and what I have that you get way off from living for the glory of God. He said, because that's what the haughty are. The word haughty literally means to be (laughs) self-aware. Let me ask you a question. How, practically speaking, do you live for the glory of God? I mean, I've heard Christians say that. Well, I'm I'm living for the glory of God. And I almost want to say, yeah, what does that look like? How do you do that? How do you do that? I was reading a book the other day by, it's a devotional book by John Piper, the famous pastor out in Minnesota who's a great theologian, great thinker. He wrote a book, it's in this Taste and See devotional book. And in here he's got a little story about his own life. And um, it gives a good illustration of what it means to live for the glory of God. I'll explain in a minute. He had just gotten himself a nice new MasterCard and he was using it to charge things. And he said, um, so I took it with me on my trip to va- to, uh, to California on vacation. But I lost it. You ever lost a credit card? Is that a bummer or what? Like somebody's going to find it. They're going to spend all my money. I'm going to get in trouble. Then I got to go through the hassle of calling the credit card. Oh, boy. Well, it could have been it's at the SEAL show at SeaWorld, he thought. And it could have been at the fruit shop in that place where the bees were all over the melons and were buying produce. Or it could have been at the McDonald's. Or it could have been in the beach in Coronado, um, you know, where the sand is golden and all these, you know, half a million dollar or million dollar condos are there. He said, I don't know where it is. But the wonderful thing is, I felt no worries, he said. Now, mind you, that's not natural for me. By nature, I'm a pessimist. And under ordinary circumstances, I would have concluded that someone had already charged the limit out on my card. I would usually have gotten mad at myself or at my family and taken out my frustration on everybody around me. I would have looked hard for some divine purpose in all this trouble and had an awful time trying to be happy. But this time, it was different. I felt no worries at all. I didn't even get angry with anyone. I never felt any frustration. I was happy the whole way through. What a victory. The whole time, it was lost. I went about my business as usual and trusted God and loved my family and did everything perfect. It just went great. Had a great vacation. And when I got home from vacation, I found an envelope in the mail from my friend Daniel Fuller, who lives in California, and we had visited. And my friend and former professor had mailed to me from California my credit card in the envelope. 
Do you know what the secret was to my happiness all that time? I never knew it was lost <laughs> until I got it in the envelope. <laughs> so he says, I opened the envelope and I stood there holding in my hand and smiling my credit card. Just think of how feisty I might have been if I'd have known I lost it. Think how depressed and worried and angry and frustrated and irritable I might have been. And the whole time, the card was safely on its way to Minneapolis and to my house. All my anger and frustration and discouragement would have been absolutely pointless. Now, is there a lesson in this for me? There sure is. It's this. As soon as we discover we have a problem, God's already working on, on the solution. And in fact, it's already on the way. It's true. God's not limited by space and time. And when David is writing this, and he's talking about how the Lord's going to take care of things, and the lowly, and the haughty, and the glory, he's saying, you know what? What am I worried about? God can handle it, and God says everything will end in his glory. So his glory is what I need to focus on. So I lose this, I win this, I have this, I don't have that. I got to focus on the glory of God. That's what I was capturing from it. Sounds like that's what John Piper is trying to talk about, and certainly David is here. Look with me now, because I'm running out of time at point three. And verse seven, acknowledge God's hand. Notice how he repeats this, though I walk in the midst of trouble. You revive me. Boy, I can relate to that. Do we need revival? Yes, you need it. I need it. You will search Uh, You will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. And then as he goes on to verse 8, he talks about how the hand of God, he asks for God's hand to be in everything. He's talking here three times. He mentions this word hand because he's saying, you know, the unseen hand of God has been at work in my past. It's at work in my present, and it'll be working all the way to his glory. See what I mean about direction? He's saying, I get so hyper about stuff. And, and yet, I can see God's hand has been working. And his unseen hand is, is still working. I have, I have a friend who was trying to explain this to me. He's about my age, and he's having some trouble in his life. And he said, you know, I'm trying to determine what to do in light of the crisis my daughter's going through. I'm trying to determine what to do with my job right now, when to retire. And I'm trying to... And he's asking all these questions. He says, you know what it feels like? It feels like... I'm in my car, it's dark, it's nighttime, and I got my headlights on. And I'm driving, but I don't quite know where to go, or when to turn, or where the next light is, or whatever. And even if I turn the high beams on, it only goes so far. Now, can you relate? I mean, we live in South Jersey, you might hit a deer any moment. So, like, you want to see beyond the headlights? He says, that's what I want to see. I want to see beyond the headlights. And he says, but then I realize... I never will. I can't. I have to depend on the unseen hand of God. See, that's where Dave's at. David's like, well, I'm going to trust your unseen hand. And your unseen hand will care about my enemies and deal with that. And your unseen hand will deal with my future. And your unseen hands are way beyond what I can ever see with my headlights, even my high beams on. It's your unseen hand that guides me. Look what he says in verse 8. This is the last verse. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. There's my favorite part. 
Your loving kindness, again, that's hesed. Your hesed, O Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the work of your hands. There's that word hands again. I read a story the other day about an old man uh, who reminded me of my wife's Uncle Don because Uncle Don was notorious for asking you questions, pointed questions. Sometimes it was just nauseating with questions. But there's times, I remember when my dad died and Uncle Don came and he was so comforting because he just knew how to ask the right questions of me to kind of like get to my soul. Well, I was reading this story about this old man that someone was writing and it reminded me of Uncle Don. And this old man didn't ask many questions. He only asked one. He didn't ask, how you doing? How's the family? How's the job? How's your health? That's like, not what he was saying. Here's the question he would ask everybody. What have you done that you really believed in and you're proud of? He said, one lady asked me that question when I asked her, and she said, well, I've raised three children. They're all married and they're doing great. And I'm proud of that. He thought, that's good. Another guy said, well, I'm a craftsman. I'm a carpenter. I build fine furniture. I really take my, art, my work like art, and I take it very seriously, and I'm very proud of what I've produced. Good. Another lady said, I started a Christian bookstore, and now it's the biggest bookstore in the whole area, and we're making a profit. We're doing really well. We're servicing the community. I feel I'm very proud of that. Good. The old man later said, I don't really care what people answer. But I want him to think of the question. Because someday they will stand before the Almighty God and be asked, what did you believe in? What did you do that you're proud of? And he says, if all they can say is, well, I made this much money, or I got these awards, or these trophies, or... He says, I want him to think about that. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me or the Lord will fulfill the purpose he has for me, which is what ESV says. He'll fulfill a purpose. You see, God has a purpose for his glory in your life. The most important question this old man understood was to keep asking yourself, what am I doing to fulfill his purpose for my existence? What am I doing to to accomplish what concerns him? He'll take care of what concerns me. He says, you just focus on my glory. And now if you notice, I need to end right now. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. But I want you to think of the three words. Did you see them in the text? The first word is love. Remember hesed, loving kindness? We're supposed to focus on God's love. And then what? His glory. Point two. And then lastly, his hand. So as you take the bread and you take the cup right now, Pastor Jarvis is going to lead us in this. Would you just use this time to meditate and think about those three words? Especially that hesed idea. Maybe there's a new concept for you that it's a one-way love. God just keeps loving you and loving you because he chose you. He picked you. He designed you. He cares for you. And you, all he asks you to do is, would you just live for my glory? Because my hand, my unseen hand is going to guide you through life when you trust me with what you have been so concerned about. Because I will accomplish what concerns you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for Psalm 138. You will accomplish what concerns me. In this room right now, I bet you there's 
thousands of concerns, whether it's for good things or just worldly things or heavenly things, it doesn't really matter. The thing is, we put them on the altar and say, here you go, Lord. You love us with an everlasting love that will never fade. It's a one-way love you won't back up on. And we can trust that. Your glory is going to be complete to the very end. I have no question of that. That's the whole reason Jesus came to earth. The whole reason he rose from the dead. The whole reason the church exists. The whole reason I can trust you is because your glory is unfading. It will be complete. You promise that. And your hand will guide me. Can Lord, help us trust your hand as we entrust our life into your hand. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, boy, you've got a chance right now. Like when I was 18, saying, oh, Lord, convert me. Oh, Lord, give me that boldness Marty talked about. Oh, Lord, give me that transformation of my soul. And maybe you're a Christian, but you never really made him the Lord. Now's your chance to say, okay, Lord, it's about your glory. It's not about me. You promised you'll accomplish what concerns me. I need to be about accomplishing what you've called me to do is my purpose. Your hand will guide me. I can rest in it. And so I do. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.